First of all, um, let me say thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today. And uh, it's so great meeting up with the 10 o'clock congregation. I just love the music. Uh, We normally go to 8 o'clock, and uh, let's just say the music is a little more traditional, and I'm loving the contemporary music, and the band is really, really great. Um, Today we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 6, looking at the Sermon on the Plain. So if you have your phones ready or a hard copy of the Bible ready, that would be really useful. But to start off with, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Uh, John Calvin uh, is one of the greats of the Protestant Reformation. He's known for his theology, but he's also known for his prayers. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, in whom is the fullness of light and wisdom, enlighten our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and give us grace to receive your word with reverence and humility, without which no one can understand your truth. Amen. Many occupations in today's modern uh, society require extensive training. If you think about doctors, five-plus years of training, engineers, five-plus years of training, teachers, likewise, there's lots and lots of occupations where the training is extensive. If you think about apprenticeships, you want to become an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, there is extensive training involved to be prepared to do your work. Uh, I got surprised a couple of weeks ago when I heard about a barista, and the barista spent three years training. Can you imagine? Three years to be a barista. The coffee must have been fantastic, and it probably cost so much. If a barista's taking three years to train, I think I'm under-trained as a teacher, even with five years training. Three years for a barista. Today, what we're going to be looking at, we're looking at, at the topic of the Sermon on the Plain. But the sub-theme is Jesus teaching his disciples. We're looking at how Jesus teaches, why Jesus teaches. And to cut a long story short, we're looking at how Jesus is teaching his disciples to deal with the world in which they live in and what sort of life they have. And then at the end of the talk today, we'll be reflecting on what it means to, to go into further training. What can we do as individuals, as a congregation, to train people up? If you think about uh, various occupations that have extensive training, one of them is Fire and Rescue New South Wales. I mentioned that uh, two of my sons are involved in Fire and Rescue. My daughter-in-law is involved in Fire and Rescue as well. Um, But the type of people that they are attracting these days are far more educated. Between my two sons and my daughter-in-law in in the fire brigade, they have uh, five university degrees amongst them. Uh, They are a very highly educated population. The former head of Fire and Rescue New South Wales had a master's degree from, from Cambridge University. They are preparing people for a job in society which is getting more and more complex. If you think about the sort of work that they do, it's no longer just putting the wet stuff on the red stuff. It's more than that. If you think about what's involved in being a firefighter today, you have to deal with fire, you have to deal with rescue situations, natural disasters, hazardous material spills, medical responses, and even counter-terrorism. I remember one of my sons being involved in the Lint Cafe uh, siege and he was around the corner on on a fire truck if everything went haywire. The things that firefighters these uh, these days have to uh, contend with is getting more and more complex. 
urban situations alone, if you have a massive story building going up, needs extensive training. As a result of that, Fire and Rescue New South Wales has a massive academy out, out at Orchard Hills. And they, look, they have an urban search and rescue facility. They have a, uh, a train set up so you can do, do rescues from train situations that people get, get trapped underneath. They have a petrol station in case petrol stations go up, high-rise towers. They do abseiling off high-rise uh, towers to rescue people. All of that is involved in preparing someone to be a firefighter. In today's passage from the Bible... We're looking at the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, that's in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through to 26. In the passage, we will see Jesus training the 12 and teaching the crowd as well. While becoming a Christian is easy, it only requires accepting the free gift of Christ to accept that Christ paid the penalty for our sins on our cross once and for all. While becoming a Christian is easy, living out uh, your Christian life is, is a lot more complex. And we need to be trained up for that, just as firefighters, teachers, engineers, medical people are trained up as well. In the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is doing just that. He's teaching his apostles. He's, a te he's teaching his disciples that are coming there. He he's teaching people who are going there to be healed. The focus is on teaching. All right, um, where have we been so far? In this summer series, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke and the various things we've looked at so far. We looked at the prologue and in the prologue in chapter 1, we looked at Paul's dedication to Theophilus. He sets out who he's writing to and the fact that he's putting together an ordered account. We looked at the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus and the whole infancy narrative. But the key thing before this happening is Jesus' preparation for ministry and his selection of the 12 apostles. In today's reading, we find a short series of blessings and woes. They are part of a lengthy sermon that is paralleled in Matthew's Gospel as well. Rather than the 107 verses in the Sermon on the Mount, here in Luke, uh, we see only 32 verses. So it's much, much shorter, but the details and the, and the things to reflect on are just as real. This is known as the Sermon on the Plain. These verses sound familiar as they are echoes of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 6. But Luke here puts a different spin on things. We're talking about the upside-down kingdom. That's the key theme here. There's a whole new spin if we look through Luke chapter 6. Just prior to this, in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through to 16, Jesus had selected the 12 apostles. Let's have a look at that a bit closer. In verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. It's interesting when he's thinking about ministry, the thought and preparation that he puts into it. 
I know often the temptation for me is when I have a, have a ministry to do or if I have something to do at work, um, I'll go in, try and solve the problem myself, and then I'll commit it to God in prayer afterwards. What Jesus is saying is that it should be the reverse. Rather than doing things our own way, Jesus, even though he's a son of God, he pauses and he spends a whole night in prayer before selecting the twelve. Not just a quick prayer, not just a quick prayer like you'd say before grace, before a meal. He spends the night praying for God's wisdom. That is a tremendous role model for us. If we're thinking about life and thinking about the things we we do at school, at work, in family situations, in ministry, the whole idea of committing things to God first is paramount. And that's the first thing that we see from Luke 6. Jesus views the selection of the twelve as being of such importance that he goes out to the mountain to pray. Prayer in this case is not short in length, rather it is continued throughout the night. He spends a whole night seeking God's wisdom. The example for us here is surely to commit both small and significant events to God before we make a decision to act. All right. So that's all taken place. The scene is up the mountain. The apostles have been chosen. He's gone up. He's given the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus now comes down from the mountain. It's an interesting picture. He's descended from the mountain to the plain. And from a geographical sense, the scene has changed, but everything else has changed as well. Jesus addressed a huge crowd that had gathered on the plain in chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, John Mason uh, states that while much of the sermon in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, um, is well known to us, there are significant variations in this version of it to indicate that Luke is describing a totally different event. Mason goes on to suggest that as good preachers often do today, Jesus seemed to have used sermon material more than once. I know I'm guilty of that when teaching. If you ask students that I've taught, a lot of my dad jokes, etc., are regularly coming through year after year, and it's the same with the content. Jesus did the same. A lot of the main material was repeated. Why is that? Because he wants to emphasise a point. If I want to emphasise a point in the classroom, I will state the point, I'll spiral around, I'll state a a similar version of the point, then spiral around and another point and another point. It's re-emphasising things. Here, what is happening is that Jesus is re-emphasising the key points he wants people to know. Some examples of this are in Luke 11, 2-4, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you can find that in Matthew, uh, Luke 12, 22-31, uh, about not being anxious. Uh, that comes through in Luke as well too. If you look at um, verse 17, I'll read through um, verse 17. Uh, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. Geographically, he's shifted to the plain but also the clientele is different. These are people 
who are not the chosen uh, apostles, his main, his main teachers to go out with the gospel message. This is his apostles, his disciples, his wider group of followers, but people who want something from him. They've heard that he's a great preacher, so they want to come and hear him preach. They've heard that he does miracles. They want to see if he's going to do a miracle. They've heard that he heals people, and many are going there to be healed. This scene is different because he's now dealing with people in the real world situation. He's dealing with people with the complexities of life in, in the area where he's preaching. And he's trying to train them up. What do you do when life doesn't go the way in which you initially planned? What do you do when you come across things that you hadn't planned on? Jesus is trying to say, in today's world, with the challenges that we have, we need to be well prepared. As the firefighter, the doctor, the engineer, the carpenter, the electrician are prepared for life, we need to be well prepared for our life as a Christian in a world with all the demands that it has. While his primary purpose here is to, pr- is to preach and teach his followers, meeting their spiritual needs, he was still at the same time meeting their physical needs. He healed all of them. Jesus does not focus on one at the expense of the other. His approach to ministry is holistic, caring for both the spiritual and physical needs of the people around him. Isn't that interesting? Often when we want to, to um, have a gospel presentation or we want to, to teach about the Bible, we focus just on the, the, the teaching itself. We forget about the practical side. Jesus, when he came, Jesus came introducing the kingdom. What does the Bible say? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Not something that's going to happen 10, 15, 20, 100,000 years from now. The kingdom of God is at hand now. And the great thing with that is the kingdom of God being at hand now is that the blessings are shown straight away. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame are walking. There are real, real blessings that are living out in people's lives now. So Jesus is meeting their spiritual needs but also their physical needs. Often if you talk about um, uh, church to people who don't have a church background, if uh, they know anything about Christian groups, one group they often know about is the Salvation Army. Um, and if you think about that, why do they know about the Salvation Army? It's because of their approach. They don't just get up on soapboxes in the middle of Hyde Park preaching at people. They actually get out there and get involved with people's lives. Life is messy. They get involved in messy parts of life. If there is a train disaster, the Salvation Army is there. If, there, if an area is flooded, the Sallies are there helping. If, if there is a fire, the Sallies are often there giving support. Their view of, of, of living the Christian life is, yes, proclaim the gospel, but live it out as well. As Jesus was concerned about their spiritual needs, he was also concerned with their physical needs. The Sallies are a role model to us as Anglicans to think about how we live out the faith as well too. We often get bogged down with what comes out from the pulpit. But the message here from the Sermon on the Plain is that Jesus is concerned with both. Don't tell me you love me if I have a need and you don't meet the need. That's the key. And Jesus here does both. Proclaims the gospel, faithfully proclaims the gospel, 
teaches his disciples, but also role models how to care for people. Um, If you look at this passage in more detail, um, in this section, Jesus begins by contrasting two groups of people. He contrasts the poor, the hungry, those who weep and the persecuted on the one hand, and he contrasts them with the rich, the satisfied, those who laugh and those who look for praise of others. Within this framework, he identified outcomes for the first and last sets of blessings uh, and he identified future eternal outcomes in the second section. He looks at future eternal outcomes. This passage is not just concerned about here and now. The big picture, the hidden message here, is that it's talking about eternal outcomes as well, beyond our current life. If you look at verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. For your reward is great in heaven. If the examples of blessings seem strange to you, you're not alone. They are not what we would normally associate with blessings. They are far from a typical list of blessings. Often we associate the word blessing with happiness and good fortune. The word blessed in Greek world uh, and in uh, Koine Greek had to do with inner happiness and contentment. So not having the physical things to make us happy, but the inward happiness within us. And that was the key. If you look at Koine Greek, in the Old Testament Hebrew, the, uh, the world uh, the, and the relevance of the term here was, was similar. It was, a inward, it was an inward uh, uh, feeling of being content with God. And that contentment in the Old Testament can, seem, can be shown in Psalm 1, Psalm 127 and in Job 29. The contentment is not through the physical things you own, but what is within us. How often in today's society does life come down to the person who has the most things? You've got the biggest house, the fastest car, the most money in the bank. You, have, you collect things. But what Jesus is saying here with this part of the passage is what's more important is what is within. What is more important is relationships, primarily a relationship with God but also a relationship with each other. If I had to lose, lose anything, I'd happily lose all of my possessions, happily lose my house, my money, everything, lose my job, everything. I don't want to lose my wife. I don't want to lose my, lose my kids. I don't want to lose my grandkids because they are far more important. Relationships are the key. From our point of view with our Christian walk, what the most important thing is is our personal relationship with God where we stand with him? Do we know him, not just as a person we hear about in church, but do we know him as our personal Lord and Saviour? God's not a God who created everything and moved away. God wants to be in relationship with, 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 with us. And for us, 
coming into relationship with him will then result in the blessings that we've heard. God will bless us when we come into relationship with him. To be blessed meant living in a keen awareness of the presence of God. It is not to be free from struggle, but to be oriented towards the reality where God's realm is realised. In each of these blessings, the struggles come with a promised reversal. The hungry will be filled, the weeping will give way to laughter. These promises are also echoed in the Song of Mary. Ben preached on uh, Luke chapter 1 and he looked at the Song of Mary. And just to refresh, um, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 46, we'll look at the Song of Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. She's not rejoicing in the physical comforts that she has around her. She probably had few, but she is rejoicing in God her Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of, the, of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. She's not going to be remembered for what what she owns or what she's done. She's going to be remembered for what God has done for her and through her. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those who humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There is a complete reversal of fortunes for the rich, for the poor. The kingdom is upside down. The powerful and the powerless, the full and the empty, there is a complete reversal. The saving work that Mary speaks of is one of total renewal, personally for herself, personally for God's people, personally for us and for the world we live in as well. God blesses us by sending his only begotten son to pay the penalty for our sin renewing us day by day. With our renewal comes the renewal of all creation. God's blessings are both great and merciful. Mary's response is also a model of humility and obedience. We likewise should respond in a similar way to the blessings of the Lord our God, by obedience and humility. Luke's words are grounded in the present reality and are a response to God working within his servant. In verses 24 to 26, Jesus pronounces woes. Woes here can be translated as alas in the New English Bible. They convey the sense of regret or sadness. They are the opposite of blessings. If you look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you 
when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The law, the wisdom and the prophecies of the Old Testament warn of the consequences of disobedience to God. The parallel structure of blessings and woes that Jesus outlines here shows us he wanted to apply afresh the meaning of God's commandments. We need to see God's blessings from a longer kingdom perspective. Moses spoke strongly about the blessings of God to the Israelites, but also warned what would happen if they turned their back on God. People who live for riches and prosperity in life will only experience the benefits now. Verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You've been paid in full. In Luke chapter 1, 51 to 53, Mary said the rich will be sent away empty. In Luke 12, 16 to 21, Jesus condemned people who have the great resources but do not use them to help the needy. And he told them a, par- a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and all my goods and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. We all know how this finishes. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and things you have prepared Whose, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. The teaching again here is to get things into perspective, to strive for things of the kingdom, to strive to see us grow in our personal relationship with Christ as our Lord and Saviour and to strive for the extension of his kingdom. Okay, what, is it, what does it look like then today for us? How can we be trained up for for ministry? How can we grow in our walk with Christ and how can we be better witnesses for Christ? There are many things you can do. As a young person, one of the key things to do is to join a youth group. Youth groups are fantastic. They give the opportunity to share, to get people on site here who normally wouldn't go to church and to tell them the gospel. Youth groups are great. But another good thing to be prepared for ministry is to go into leading youth groups. I, I had great pleasure in seeing, uh, seeing our kids getting involved in church youth groups when they were growing up and to see one of them also become a leader at CMS Summer School. He'd gone to, through summer school, he'd been, he, he experienced that year after year and he wanted to go back and start giving back as a youth leader. It was a great thing to see our kids doing that to see kids involved in church Bible study groups for young people, get involved in leadership of youth groups. If you are going to lead a youth group, you need to be better prepared and built up and trained yourself. So one way to grow in the faith is get into leadership of youth groups. Another great thing to do, and I think is something that we all need to think about, is get involved in Bible study groups. Bible study groups are such a great way to learn about the Word of God. If you have questions, yes, you can always come up and catch the preacher after church and things like that. But a great way to learn is to go into a Bible study group and bounce ideas off each other. They are a great thing to do. 
But do you know something? Bible study group is also more than that. I like to think of Bible study groups as pastoral care groups. If someone has a need in church, it's often the Bible study leaders who know first. If I have a need, my Bible study group leader will know before Craig does. They will know before Chris. My Bible study group will be there with me week after week. And often the Bible study groups will help meet my needs and give me guidance, give me direction, and give me support and lots and lots of prayer. Bible study groups are great. If you're a member of a Bible study group, continue. If you're not in a Bible study group in 2024, be challenged. A good resolution might be join the Bible study group. Another thing that's really good is YouthWorks. YouthWorks is run by the Anglican Church. YouthWorks is a great opportunity for young people to uh, be trained up for ministry. They also have something called a gap year. So when you finish year 12, you can be connected with the church, with like the ministry training scheme, and you can have an active uh, testing of the water to see if future ministry is for you. YouthWorks is great. Ministry training scheme is also great as well. If you want to do some of your own study and you feel, oh, I don't really want to go to a big college or something, more College PTC, Preliminary Theological Certificate. I got that out, Chris. There you go, I got that out. Um, the, the PTC course is fantastic. It's all online. It's about 10 units. They give you all the answers, etc., with all the notes, and uh, you can go and do the test. It's all multiple choice. If you don't want to do the test part, you can just do the course and not worry about the test at all. More College PTC, really good. If you want to go further than that, you can do other study, places like More Theological College, or BTH or BD, etc. If you want to go to Sydney uh, Missionary and Bible College at Croydon, they are really great there. They have a, a really good reputation. If you want to go into State, Ridley College in, uh, in Victoria is extremely reformed evangelical. Great place to study. There are options for us. There are options for us. The challenge for us is to be prepared for ministry. And to be prepared for ministry, we need to be teachable throughout our life. Rather than saying, yes, I've done Bible study in the past, or yes, I've been to church, we need to regularly seek ways of growing in the faith. So we become closer to Christ and more effective for ministry. Jesus is God's appointed King and Messiah whose coming into the world involves suffering. His role as Messiah will be established through his obedience at Calvary. His rule as Messiah will carry beyond this present age. Jesus can say in the Sermon on the Plain that the poor will, be, will begin to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God now, not in the future, but now, because God's true King has come. He was teaching his followers to live with the taste of these realities day by day. The passage is a splendid vision of what the church will look like in the next world. The challenge for us is to live a life as close to Christ's vision as possible, rejoicing in the blessings of God and responding with a life of faith and obedience. Let's pray. Dear God, we acknowledge the blessings you give us day by day and especially the free gift of salvation you offer because of, cross, of, because of Christ's obedience on the cross. Help us to live a life of faith, love and obedience to Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Help us to grow in our love, our knowledge and our understanding 
of you as our Lord and Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.